So here's the thing. Nothing strikes fear in the heart of a teacher more than a formal observation. I mean, you're completely exhausted from all the extra hours that you spent creating that perfect, magical lesson plan, right? And there you are, waiting anxiously on pin and needles with sweaty palms and a dry mouth for your admin to stroll through the door. And then there's the sound. That's the sound of a clock ticking endlessly inside your head that you can't get rid of no matter how hard you try, right? And it doesn't matter if you're a brand new teacher or a seasoned professional. Formal observations will always get those butterflies in your stomach going. You're listening to Elevating Early Childhood, where we believe in leveling the playing field and bridging the gap between the world of preschool, pre-K, and K-12 education. I'm your host, Vanessa Levin, and I went from a pre-K teacher of 20 years to a passionate advocate for high-quality early childhood education. I truly believe that the work you do, yes, you as an early childhood professional, is absolutely crucial, not just for your students, but society as a whole. I believe that you deserve to have the tools and training that you need to do your job well so you can really embody your role as a professional educator and your students can achieve their true potential. Listen in each week as I bring you real conversations with me and other early childhood teachers and experts where our mission is to guide you on your journey to becoming the most well-equipped and highly trained professional educator you can possibly be. All while helping you teach smarter, not harder, so you can live more. And there might even be a little humor thrown in here and there just to keep things light and fun. If you'd like to get started upping your early literacy game today, check out my book, Teach Smarter, Literacy Strategies for Early Childhood Teachers on Amazon. Now, we can't avoid formal observations altogether, but there are some things you can do to make them go more smoothly, and there's definitely some pitfalls that you should avoid at all costs. So be sure to stick around until the very end of this episode of Elevating Early Childhood so you can stress less and have more confidence during your formal observation. So here's an example from when I was a student teacher. So picture this, if you will. The year was 1990-something, and I was doing my student teaching, and I had found what I thought was the perfect lesson to present during an observation, which would be conducted by my student teaching supervisor. And so I had this lesson that was all about healthy eating, and it seemed to tick the boxes for what I knew the observer would be looking for. So here are some of the critical mistakes that I made that just completely ruined my lesson. And so here they are so you can avoid them. My first mistake was I didn't take into consideration the ages of the students that I was going to be sitting in front of delivering this lesson to. And that was children who were ages five to six in kindergarten. I just chose what the lesson that I thought was the best lesson, because there is no such thing, of course, I now know that. But I was focusing on what I thought the lesson should entail based on what I knew my observer would be looking for. So I was just ticking the boxes, right? I didn't really go deeply enough. Another thing that I did wrong was I didn't consider the background knowledge of my students. So here I was doing this fabulous lesson that looked great on paper, all about how we should be eating apples and broccoli and all this good stuff and avoiding the Doritos and the 
um, soda, right? But I forgot completely that my students lived in what we now know as a food desert. And so I was in an urban setting and some of my kids didn't have a lot of experience with these kinds of foods. So I really needed to back things up and do like a unit on vegetables and fruits and things like that. But they kind of looked at me blankly when I said to eat an apple and they're like, what? <laughs> this lady crazy? Something else that I completely neglected to consider was my students' attention spans. I know, right? Imagine that. <laughs> That's a critical mistake. So I didn't realize how long the lesson would have to be in order to make sure that every student had a chance to participate. I knew that my observer was looking for that. I had 25 kids in the class, right? And I was going to be doing a graphing activity where we were supposed to graph healthy and not healthy foods. And each student was going to come up and place a photo in the column on the shirt that I made. And having 25 kids come up and do that was a big ask. So you can imagine by the time the first student had done theirs, so the time the last student did theirs, came up and put it in the chart, was much, much, much too long for the entire class to be seated and remain uh, engaged. So that was a complete flop. I'm sure you already guessed how this observation turned out. My perfect lesson turned into the perfect nightmare. But that's what student teaching is all about, really. It's about getting constructive feedback about what we're doing while we're in the trenches, quote unquote, right? Now, I may have learned my lesson the hard way, but I'm sure glad I did. So fast forward to my first year teaching public pre-kindergarten, some of the very best advice that I received from my mentors that first year in public pre-K was to never do anything differently during your formal observation than you would do on any other normal day in your classroom. And that goes for those third-party observations, too. Um, you know, those kinds that are done by those companies that have five letters in their name, you know, those acronyms. So here are the pitfalls to avoid when it comes to preparing for your formal observation. And number one, the number one thing is never spend extra time, effort, or anything extra special on finding that perfect lesson. Because perfect lessons for formal observations don't exist, right? You're just going to spend a lot of time looking for, it's like a treasure hunt and nobody knows where the treasure is buried because there is no treasure, okay? Your observer, believe me when I say this, your observer is not expecting a full stage production of Hamilton complete with costume changes. That's not what they're looking for. What they're actually looking for is just a glimpse into what your typical daily routine lessons or interactions with your students look like. Any deviations from the norm are going to be extremely risky, right? So you see when changes are made to your typical daily routine in the classroom or your lessons even, they will turn out exactly how young children react when their schedule or anything in their environment is changed. And that is they will react poorly, right? <laughs> They will shout things out like, hey, we've never done this before, or why is so-and-so here to watch us, or they will just act completely off the wall. So never deviate from what you normally do. If you have a schedule, stick to it, right? So do this instead. You're going to focus on routines and procedures, right? You're going to make sure that your kids have the routines and the procedures of your classroom down pat 
before that formal observation. Now, I know a lot of you out there are like, wait a minute, I get observed really early in the year. We're going to address that a little later in the episode, so keep watching. The other thing is to focus on student engagement, right? One of the things Dr. Jean has always said is the teacher brings the magic, and this is where you can put your own special spin on things because you're going to be doing finger plays or songs or something to increase the engagement because you want the children to look engaged in the lesson, right? So you're going to do all those things. And some ideas for increasing engagement and circle time can be found in my seven circle time mistakes free download, which I will put a link in the show notes below if you are watching along. And if you're listening along, go to prekpages.com and type in seven circle time mistakes there in the search box so you can grab your free copy as well. Because your admin won't just be assessing you and your abilities, they're going to be looking at your classroom management skills too, right? That's why procedures and routines are key at this time. The next thing you're going to want to do is, now this is part of procedures and routines, but I want to highlight it, is your transitions. Make sure they're really tight, they go smoothly, and you're going to be using your picture schedule during your formal observation because you're going to remind your students up front before you begin your lesson, and if indeed it's whole group, that what comes next, right? Because usually, in my experience, now it could be different in different places, but they will stay for an entire lesson and then the beginning of whatever comes next so they can see the kids transition. So you're going to want to make sure that your kids know exactly what's coming next and how to get there, right? What's the next step in this process? So you're going to review the classroom rules too um, before you start your lesson so that your administrator knows that A, you have them, and B, your kids know them because a lot of times, depending on what time of the year it is, they will be able to tell them back to you. So what is an example of a successful lesson that you can use for a formal observation? Now, what I can tell you is that one of the things that worked for me and one of the things that does work for our Trailblazer mentorship students are the fairy tale or the nursery rhyme activities from the Trailblazer curriculum. And these are successful for formal observations because you're going to be focusing on one story or rhyme for the entire week. You're going to have every center of your classroom completely infused with this, take the three little pigs, for example, with this fairy tale, right? So in my block center, I've got STEM materials so the students can build the three little pigs' houses if we're doing the three little pigs' fairy tale. I've got things in my sensory bin. I've got science that we can do. Uh, I've got everything. And our lessons include the entire weekly outline for you, right? So there's a grid with every center in your classroom. It has your small group activities, and it has your supplemental materials. It has everything from a dramatic play to art center to, like I said, science, small group literacy, small group math, even a snack, you name it, it's got it in there. Each activity or center has a picture that you can also reference because I know a lot of you like to see pictures or that you learn better with pictures. So there's pictures for every single activity with step-by-step -step directions and also the accessories. So when you do a fairy tale for an entire week, right, you're reading a different version of the story for five days. Now, if you need stories or, you know, different titles, 
those are in my uh, Three Little Pigs book list. So we'll link those in the show notes as well. Or you can just type Three Little Pigs inside the search box at Pre-K Pages and all the relevant posts for that should pop up. And there you'll find the Three Little Pigs book list. So you're reading these different versions. And on the last day, that's always the day I hope the administrator comes. But if you have the ability to schedule when your administrator comes, do it on the last day because your kids will be really familiar with the general story outline, but they've read different versions. And so on Friday or the last day of the week, you're going to compare and contrast those versions, right? So you're going to talk about how this version of the Three Little Pigs is different than this version, like the James Marshall version has them going to the apple orchard. It's the more extended version, whereas the Linda McQueen version has them. It's an abbreviated version, right? And some of them have him burning his tail in the pot and running away. Others do not. And there's different versions of the story, but your students can review with you the characters, the setting, the plot, all these things that you don't normally think of as preschoolers being able to do, they can do when you've been studying this story for a week. And so it always ends up being a great lesson that my kids are super engaged in and that the Trailblazer members have also uh, attested to that their children are really engaged in these. It fits with their routine because it's almost like you've been practicing for five days in a row. <laughs> and then the next time that you do a fairy tale for a week, which is what I prefer to do. They will also have that frame of reference already. They will have experienced that same thing. I always love it the second time I do one of these fairy tale units because they'll say, hey, this is just like the Goldilocks one or whatever you just did previously, right? Um, and they get into that. They're like, oh, are we going to do that on Friday where we tell your fa our favorite one? And they'll be shouting out during the lessons, you know, during this subsequent um, fairy tales that we do. Oh, oh, I can't wait to choose my favorite one. This is going to be my favorite one. <laughs> so those are always really successful. I'm sure there's plenty of others out there. But this to me just seems like a real easy no-brainer that always gets good results. Ever find yourself dreading the school bell? No, not the one in the morning. I'm talking about the afternoon. You know, the bell that lets you know your littles are gone for the day and you can get back to that mountain of planning and prep work on your desk after that staff meeting, of course. Some things are just unavoidable for early ed teachers, just like those pesky staff meetings, but being overworked and overwhelmed doesn't have to be part of the job. Not if you've got the right combination of knowledge, curriculum, and support. That's where the Teaching Trailblazers program comes in. It's the program for pre-K teachers who want to bring their A-game to their students and still have a life. Go to teachingtrailblazers.com to apply today. And now I want to turn my attention to some of the things that might be out of our control during formal observations that we really don't like, want to avoid at all costs, but can't change. Okay, so the first one is getting your observation, like I said before, too early in the school year. Now, administrators, if you're listening or watching, I want you to remember this. If you're indeed like in a K-5 campus, Starting with pre-K, because it seems like the easiest ones to get off your list, is never a good idea. <laughs> I know that's probably not what some of them want to hear, but if you're on a K-5 or pre-K-5 campus and you have a lot of teachers to observe, right? Like our my school when I left um, was 900 kids. So you've got a lot of teachers you have to observe throughout the year. Usually there's a principal and an assistant principal 
and they split the duties evenly between them. But still, that's a lot of teachers that you have to observe. And so they say, okay, in a very linear fashion, I'm going to start with pre-K and go to fifth. And they'll start like the second week of school or whenever. And your kids are just still wandering around crying for mommy and having to go potty all the time. That's not fair to anybody. It's going to give poor results, really. So I hope that administrators will hear this and will acknowledge the fact that we shouldn't start first with pre-K. <laughs> Maybe start with another grade that, it, that where kids have had some experience, prior experience with school, because pre-K is a completely different animal, right, than first through fifth grade, right? By first grade, they've all been to kindergarten. Usually most states are mandatory these days, just a couple outliers out there. So most kids have been to kindergarten, right? Not all kids have been to pre-K. The other thing is putting off pre-K till the end of the year. And that's the administrator that likes to say, I'm going to save the easiest for last. I'm just going to go in there, last day of school, just knock them all out. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair to anybody because the end of the year, kids in pre-K start getting really wild, right? Because they sense the end is coming. Um, there's this uncertainty about what's going to happen next year. They've never had the experience of this closure before. There's a lot of stress on, on teachers at the end of the year that principals, I don't think, always realized extends down to pre-K as well. We have a lot of things we have to do. We have, if you're in a public school, report cards. And um, if you're in a Title I school, there's a lot of extra paperwork. If you're working with second language learners, there's a lot of paperwork. There's endless number of ARDS that are happening because at the end of pre-K is usually when we see kids that you've referred starting to have their first ARD getting ready for kinder. So many things. We've got our end of the year celebration. We've got to turn in our assessment data. I mean, so many things that I think that doing anyone's observation on the last day of school is really unfair. So administrators, if you're listening, let me know if you need help with time management skills. I'm here for you, okay? And last but not least, there's one thing that observers can do that's really, really rude, in my opinion. And I'm sure every classroom teacher out there will shout amen as I say these words, right? Having your observation the day of a holiday or like I'm talking about Valentine's Day or someday when you have a classroom party or the day after is really, really unfair. Now, in my own experience, our school district had a clause that said you couldn't evaluate teachers the day after a holiday, meaning if you'd been gone for winter break, that first day back, there were no evaluations that would be scheduled. I loved that. I don't know if it still exists today, but I loved that because it was fair, right? Kids, when they come back from break, especially in pre-K, you have to reteach a lot of procedures and routines. So it's really unfair and just downright rude, I think, to do it the first day after a holiday break or the day of a classroom party like Valentine's Day. That's just ridiculous, in my opinion. And it just puts everyone in an awkward position. And you can't imagine the kind of stress that teachers have during these types of events because you've got so many moving parts and pieces and things that are out of the norm. I just think it's wrong, but that's just me, okay? Now, here is the kicker. I don't know if anyone else out there has experienced it or I'm just super unlucky, but I'm gonna think that a lot of teachers in pre-K-5 schools or campuses have experienced this, and that is being evaluated by a new administrator 
who is coming directly from being a high school coach of a sports team. Yes, this has happened to me twice (laughs) in my career, and it is really, really nerve-wracking. So let me tell you about the first time this happened to me. I was teaching on a campus that was new to me, but I was not new to the district, and they had just hired a brand new assistant principal who was coming directly from high school after having been a coach. So this was her first experience being an administrator. And of course, once again, principals don't do this. Assign your brand new administrator to pre-K because pre-K, quote unquote, doesn't count, right? Oh, she can get her her feet wet with pre-K. No, (laughs) please no. I think evaluating pre-K should, it should be a requirement that somebody evaluates that has actually taught pre-K before, not somebody who's taken a training on how to be a pre-K assessor, an actual pre-K teacher, or kindergarten teachers. That's all, that all usually works well, too, but not a high school sports coach. So what happened during my observation? Hmm. But let me tell you what happened. She marked me low on every single thing. I had 26 students in my class with no assistant. (laughs) All of them were second language learners, and they were all four years old. It did not go well, because her idea of what successful learning looked like in the classroom did not indeed follow at all with what we know are the developmental milestones and what young children at the age of four are able to do. So I got marked down on everything on classroom management. I got marked down on engagement. You name it, I got marked down on it. Um, The kids just played. I remember that was one of the things that she wrote in her evaluation. So thankfully, in my situation, I was able to appeal that evaluation and have a third party evaluator come in. And I got stellar results after that because we needed somebody who had evaluated pre-K before, right? I don't know if that you're able to do that in every area, but it strikes fear in my heart when administrators are assigned to evaluate pre-K and they don't have any knowledge or experience with that age level. So here's what I did. Aside from appeal, I gathered evidence. I gathered the developmental milestones. I I gathered the report card for our grade level. And I actually took every single markdown she had given me and I refuted it with evidence. And so um, she'd even marked me down on parent communication and she was just there to observe my circle time. So (laughs) there's no way she could have said that I wasn't doing parent communication when indeed I had uh, a website for my class and I had a weekly newsletter that I sent home. So this was back in the day. So we didn't have um, a lot of electronic means, but we had those things. So, you know, I had to refute every single thing. So I pulled out my big stack of newsletters that I've been sending home all year and plopped them right on her desk. That might not be for you or that might not work in your situation. So when it happened to me the second time I had experience in this area, I didn't want to get that poor evaluation and have to refute it again. That never looks good. So I made sure my principal was educated beforehand and I just created a little cheat sheet. It said, welcome to my classroom. Here's the age of my students, you know, four to five years old. How many of them have had prior school experience? Zero. I made sure that number was just a big goose egg. I let them know exactly what my objectives were during each time of the day. So I didn't have to change it for each lesson or anything that 
This is what we're learning when we're doing this. This is what we're learning when we're doing that. Here are some things that you might look for. You know, I actually suggested these things and I provided like, here's my lesson plans for the year. You know, principals like to review the lesson plans, but that would be in a utopia, right? If you've got 900 teachers or 900 kids in your school and like 50 teachers or however many that is, you can't be reviewing every single person's lesson plans. So I wouldn't expect them to know all the previous lessons we'd done. So I had my lesson plan binder out there, printed out, stacked right on top of my newsletter binder, and I would put all these binders in the chair with the note on top. <laughs> so when they came in, they would see it. And yes, I just had an observation window, not a specific day. That would have been nice. And so I just put an extra chair at circle time with all those documents on it every day during my observation window until they showed up. And it paid off the second time. That didn't happen. But I think it was more because my principal had experience being a principal, although he had been in the high school arena coaching. Uh, he experienced uh, evaluating pre-K before. So he had already been kind of trained or broken in, if you will. And I didn't have to worry so much, but I digress. So there you have it. My very best tips for having a successful formal observation in your classroom and the pitfalls to avoid. If you found any of this information helpful, please consider sharing this episode of Elevating Early Childhood with your friends and colleagues. And if you have a nightmare observation story to share, we'd love to hear about them in the comments here on YouTube. Until next time, I'm Vanessa Levin. Onward and upward. If you love what you've learned in this episode, you've got to come check out the Teaching Trailblazers program. Teaching Trailblazers is the place for teachers like you to get the professional development, resources, and support you need to thrive. It's where you can learn relevant, life-changing best practices with professional development created specifically around the challenges early childhood teachers face. It's where you can get access to a complete research-based pre-K curriculum that you can use to supplement your existing curricula or use on its own to get 100% of your students kindergarten ready by the end of the year. And it's where you can hang out and connect over all things early childhood with other teachers just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will rock your teacher world, I guarantee it. Come join us at teachingtrailblazers.com to get more information and apply. That's teachingtrailblazers.com. I can't wait to see you there.